Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Now, sometimes there's just something about being on your knees before the Lord. Sometimes just on your face before the Lord. Because when you're outwardly in that position and posture of humility, it kind of is a game changer in your prayer life because outwardly is how you're approaching God inwardly. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Ezra. While there isn't a specific way we're to position ourselves when we pray, there is something to be said about taking a posture of humility. As Pastor J.D. explains to us, expressing outward humility when praying to our Heavenly Father can dramatically impact our prayer life. For when we humbly come before the Lord, it is pleasing to Him. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. in the book of Ezra, chapter 9, with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. Verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garments and my robe, I fell on my knees. Now picture this. I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. That's a good posture to take. I find it interesting that his posture is that of prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. We've been talking a lot about that lately, haven't we? The power of prayer and fasting. And this prayer and fasting is concerning this grievous sin on the part of his people. Notice he mentions those who had been carried away captive in verse 4. That's interesting. I point that out and draw your attention to it because of the horrible irony of it. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The very reason, and I want you to think this through with me, the very reason they had been carried away captive was because of the very transgression that they were still committing even now. you got to know that this is what's going through Ezra's mind. Are you kidding me? This is why we were taken away captive in the first place, and you're doing it again? Keep in mind, they've been there for a few years now. The the, the temple had been laying in ruins. They stopped the rebuilding. They started building for themselves nice houses. And the prophet Haggai came with Zerubbabel and said, Is it time for you now to be building your nice paneled houses while the temple lies in ruins? Now's the time. So they started rebuilding the temple. They completed the temple. And here comes Ezra. And you're doing the very thing that caused us 
to be taken captive in the first place that caused us to watch the temple be destroyed and you're doing it again? This, I can't, Ezra would say, I can't wrap my mind around this. And then he fasts, he prays, and that's interesting because of his physical posture. We're told in verse 5 that he fell on his knees, he spread out his hands to the Lord, his God, as he offered up his prayer to him. You know, I don't want to get legalistic here, but I'm, I've been learning a few things. The Lord's been teaching me, he's probably better said, a few things about prayer as of late. And one of those things is, I don't know where we get this. So like right now, if I was to say, hey, let's pray. Our heads go down and our eyes get shut and sometimes our hands get folded. Okay, that's fine. If that's how you want to pray, it's, it's not so much the posture of our body as much as it is the posture of our heart before the Lord. But when Ezra's praying here, his eyes are open, his hands are up, and he's on his knees. And this is how he's praying. Oh, Lord, and he's lifting up, crying out in prayer to the Lord. This way, with hands up, hands lifted up. And that's how they did it. And that's how they would pray back then. Now, why am I making a, a big deal of it? Well, I think it speaks to an important principle when it comes to not only when we pray, but how we pray. I like how one commentator put it. He said, the Bible has enough prayer not on the knees to show us that it isn't required, but it also has enough prayer on the knees to show us that it is good. Now, sometimes there's just something about being on your knees before the Lord. Sometimes just on your face before the Lord. Because when you're outwardly in that position and posture of humility, it kind of is a game changer in your prayer life because outwardly is how you're approaching God inwardly. It's that humbling of oneself before the Lord as you pray to the Lord. Lift up your voice in prayer to the Lord. Not that God looks at us and says, well, you're not on your knees. I'm not going to answer that prayer. Please don't think that. But isn't it true that when we are, that it, it does change the complexion of that prayer? Now, as I get older, I find that I don't pray as long if I'm on my knees because I start to hurt. This is, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're just, you're on your knees, you're going, oh Lord. And then you, sometimes you pray faster because, okay, okay, amen. Oh, 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 and then getting up, it's, it, it takes a little bit longer. Is it just me? But anyway, so what I find, now this is what works for me. Lately, I've been walking as I pray. And sometimes that's, 
you know, for the one who's more kinesthetic, as they say, where you kind of always have to be moving. But I find that when I'm, when I'm walking in my office, in my house, kind of back and forth, and I'm just, my hands are lifted up, it's just, oh Lord, thank you, oh Lord, I'm just praying and I'm praising Him. And I, before I know it, 15, 20 minutes has gone by. Now, if I'm on my knees, <laughs> It's more like maybe five minutes tops, and that's even pushing it. But anyway, enough of my problems. Let's move on. Verse 6, and I said, now this is Ezra's prayer. He's on his knees. His hands are up. His eyes are open. He says, oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And now, listen to verse 8, very interesting. For a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Wow. I'm too embarrassed. I'm too humiliated. I'm too ashamed, Lord. Why? Why why is he feeling this way? Oh, because this is how God's people respond to the grace and the mercy of God. He has brought them back from captivity. They've rebuilt the temple. He's returned them to their land. He's been gracious and merciful to them. And this is how they repay him. And Ezra is saying, I'm ashamed. This is shameful. This is shameful. This is how your people repay you for your grace, your kindness, your goodness. You brought revival, and this is what they do? This is humiliating. This is shameful. This is how God's people respond to the grace and mercy of God. That's how Ezra is is feeling. You ever been embarrassed? and ashamed at how some Christians act. That's what Ezra's feeling here. Again, these are God's people. Why are they acting like this? Why are they doing this? They've been on the receiving end of God's amazing grace, God's enduring mercy that endures forever, and this is what they do? Verse 10, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land. 
with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to the other with their impurity. Now, therefore, here it is, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it, as an inheritance to your children forever. Oh yeah, I forgot about the children. This is what the legacy you're going to leave for your children? This is the inheritance? What are you going to do to the next generation, what you're doing? And verse 13, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Whoa! What? God, you haven't paid us as our sins deserve. That's your mercy, God. You could have certainly punished us equal to what our iniquities deserve, but you didn't. And have given us such deliverance as this. Should we, verse 14, again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Oh, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. You know what Ezra's doing here? He's making no excuses. We do that, don't we? I mean, isn't our typical response is, well, you know, it was this, it was that, it was the woman you gave me. When Adam in the garden, it's it's her fault. And then... And then what does Eve do? Oh, she, oh, it's very subtle, by the way. She doesn't actually technically blame the serpent. You know what she does? She actually has the audacity to blame God for putting the serpent in the garden in the first place. This is conspicuously absent from Ezra's prayer is any mention of, well, God, you should have not let those people be there in the first place and we wouldn't have married them. Really? No. He is appealing to only, solely, the mercy and grace of God. God, you you have been so merciful. You didn't pay us as our sins deserve. You have been so good. And Lord, because you are good, because you are merciful, because you are gracious, there's no defending, there's no explaining, there's no excusing what they did. He's just pleading with God. He's throwing himself and the people at the mercy of God. This is what David, who had a heart after God's own heart, would do. This is how David would pray. This uh, a couple weeks ago, the Lord just reminded me, by the way, Psalm 119, what a psalm. 
It's all about the Word of God. It's a very long psalm, actually the longest in, in all of the psalms. But verses 49 and 50, listen to these two verses in Psalm 119. This is David now. He says to the Lord, he pleads and appeals to the Lord. And this is what he says. Remember the word to your servant. Remember your word, Ezra would pray to your people. That they would be a remnant. Your promise to your people. Remember, Lord, your promise to your people. And David says, upon which you have caused me to hope. In other words, that's my only hope. My only hope is in a God who will be merciful to me. And then he says, verse 50, This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. You know what he's saying? It's what Ezra's saying. Lord, you gave us your word. You gave us your word. You can't go against your word. Remember your word? Remember your promise? There's nothing wrong, by the way, with reminding God. He's not offended by that. It's not a a lack of faith. It's not testing the Lord to say, Lord, remember, oh, Moses did it throughout. He would always say to God, God, remember, there's one account. It's so humorous. And if I didn't, if I didn't know it was in the word, I would question it because Moses and God are having this argument about whose people they are. You know, kind of like parents when the kid's been really bad. Moses says, remember, your people. And God says, no, <laughs> wash my hands. They're your people, Moses. Moses, they're not mine. They're not mine. They're your people. And God says, no, they're your people. It is so humorous. It's right there. They're going back and forth. He's reminding God, no, no, God, these are your, <laughs> these are your people. Your promise to your people. Your promise, your word to your servant. God has promised. And when God promises and God gives us his word, that's it. That settles it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. Oh. So picture the scene here. The people are witnessing Ezra wailing, weeping. Oh, God, please be merciful to us. And they see that. They witness that. And as a result of that, they too began to weep very bitterly. This is good. This is very good. And Shechaniah, verse 2, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore, verse 3, Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble, tremble 
at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Oh, wow. Uh, this is known as repentance. Where I come from, they call that, re- <laughs> the people have repented. They have, this is a, as Paul would describe it to the Corinthians, a godly sorrow that leads to a genuine repentance. Different than the sorrow of being caught. That's the worldly sorrow. We've been found out. Oh, I'm sorry. I get pulled over. I, I, I don't never get pulled over, Artie. I haven't been pulled over and I haven't had a ticket in over 30 years. I'm such an, a law-abiding citizen. But let's just say Artie pulls me over just figuratively, you know, theoretically, just for purpose of illustration. He pulls me over and uh, he says... Uh, uh, can I see, or Paula, too. Paula, I've never been, uh, did I say that already? Okay, so I get pulled over and they say, I need your license and, and registration. Do you know why I pulled you over? No. Isn't that what they, they always say that, right? No. Uh, well, you were exceeding the speed limit by, you know, so many miles per hour. And what am I going to say? I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I'm not sorry. I'm sorry because I got caught. I'm sorry that I got pulled over. That's why I'm sorry. Of course, I'm going to be so- sorry. You're not really sorry. Because see, if you were really sorry, there would be a change in how you drive. That's a true sorrow that leads to a change. That's really being sorry. How am I doing? That was pretty good, wasn't it? Did I do all right with that? Good. Okay, so... All right, so, but this is a genuine sorrow. This is a godly sorrow, and it's a genuine repentance. They have hearkened unto the voice of Ezra's cry, and the people have repented, and they've repented so much that they're trembling. Literally, they're, they're shaking. They have been shaken by this. And I just think to myself, wow. Would to God that we would tremble at the word of our God. That's the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord that is to hate evil. Verse 4, arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to his word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. We are so glad you've joined us again for another look into the book of Ezra. We believe the Spirit of God is alive and active in the world today, and that He brings to life the words written in Scripture. We hope today's message has brought you life. If you'd like to hear more life-giving messages from Pastor J.D. Farag, you'll find them online at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. While you're there, take a moment to check out the Mideast Prophecy Update in which Pastor J.D. discusses current events and their prophetic importance each Friday and Saturday. Here to tell you more about this is Pastor J.D. Thanks, Josh. Followers of Jesus Christ have this anticipating 
of his soon return at the rapture of the church, especially with everything that's happening in the world today. I'm of the belief that we are seeing key Bible prophecies beginning to come to pass in real time. And it's for this reason that we do these weekly prophecy updates as we look up and lift up our heads, knowing our redemption draws ever so near. This is what Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 28. Our hope here at In Spirit and Truth is that believers will be ready and non-believers will get ready by coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ while there's still time. Thanks, Pastor J.D., and thanks to you for being a part of our listening audience. If you're in the Kaneohe area, we'd love to meet you in person. Stop by Calvary Chapel Kaneohe on Sundays and Thursdays to worship with us and study the Word of God. Find directions and service times at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. And be sure to tune in again right here on In Spirit and Truth.